So this scripture comes from Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out to the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in boots, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord. But he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And, he, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king king's anger arises and he says to you why did you go so near the city to fight did you not know they would shoot from the wall who killed abimelech the son of jerubasheth did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in thebes why did you go so near the wall then you shall say your servant uriah the hittite is dead also so the messenger went and came and told david all that joab had sent him to tell the messenger said to david the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Tim. That was a long chapter. Please join me in this time of prayer. God, we commit this time to you. Speak to us now and help us to be able to see our desperate need for you that we may learn to cling to you, depend on you every moment of our lives. Thank you. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. Today I'll be beginning a short two-sermon series on the life of David. Of course, it's simply impossible to cover everything about David with just two sermons. Uh, We will be taking a closer look at two particular episodes that have profound impact in his life. And this is a period in which David fell into a great sin. So today's part one, uh, we'll be focusing on uh, 2 Samuel 11 uh, concerning David and Bathsheba, how David fell into this great sin. And next Sunday, we will take a look at 2 Samuel chapter 12, a passage about David, the prophet and uh, that God sends. His name is Nathan and how God uses him to restore him. Now, as we unpack 2 Samuel 11 together, it is my prayer and hope that today's message will serve as a solemn warning and that it will cause you to even more desperately cling to Jesus, who is our sin-conquering Savior. It happened to David in an instant. It could happen to you. It could happen to me. It could happen to any of us. Now, three points I'll be raising uh, during this sermon. Point number one, the danger of spiritual complacency. Point number two, the destructive path of spiritual compromise. And point number three, our desperate need for the sin-conquering king. Let's jump into the first point together, the danger of spiritual complacency. Verse one, in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. As we delve into this passage together, I want to draw your attention to the fact that David is not supposed to be here at Jerusalem in his royal bedroom. Why? They're still at war with the Ammonites, as verse 1 indicates. And David, as the king of Israel and as the commander of his army, should have been in the battlefield, leading his army to yet another victory for God's kingdom. But instead, David sends Joab to war against the Ammonites. And David, for some reason, and we don't know why, decides not to go. And he remains at Jerusalem. He is sitting this one out. Verse 2, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful. Now David has absolutely no idea at this point what is about to happen. For David, it is a day that will live in infamy the series of events that will transpire on this remarkably horrific day will indeed destroy his character as the man after God's own heart, smear his reputation as the faithful king of Israel, and forever ruin his spiritual legacy. Now, verse 2 tells us that David was having a lazy day. He slept in and just woke up from a nice afternoon nap. I forgot what that felt like. (laughs) See, as you can see, he was having a lazy day, and he didn't begin his day right with God. He didn't begin his day with QT. His mind at that moment wasn't prepared to engage in spiritual warfare. His heart at that moment wasn't ready to withstand 
the enemy's attacks. David at that moment simply wasn't ready to stand firm and fight back. His guard was completely down and he wasn't spiritually awake and alert. And let's not forget the fact that he is not even supposed to be here. He finds himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. And here's the thing. David is now about to enter into a place that is far more dangerous and deadly than the battlefields where he has been waging war for years and where he has won many victories. The very place where he has defeated many armies. But in this place, he will experience defeat that will haunt him for the rest of his life. What does David do? He's bored. He has nothing better to do. He has all this free time, so just wandering around on his roof, and aha, uh-huh, he catches this woman bathing. So David looks at Bathsheba, and David immediately gives in to temptation. Sin takes hold of David's heart, and it consumes him. All it takes is a, is a glance. Now, in his book, Temptation, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he writes these words to help us better understand the power of sin. And I want you to read along. In our members, there is a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce. With irresistible power, desire seizes the mastery of the flesh. All at once, a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it is a sexual desire or ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love of fame or power or greed for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. Remember those words. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with the hatred of God, but with the forgetfulness of God. The lust thus aroused envelops the mind and the will of men in deepest darkness. The powers of the clear discrimination of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation, to appease desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there's one command, flee. Flee fornication, flee idolatry, flee youthful lust, flee the lust of the world. There's no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust in one's own strength is doomed to failure. Remember the passage in Luke chapter 4 where Satan came to tempt Jesus. And he tempts him three times, right? But do you guys remember how Jesus defeats the enemy's temptations each time? With the word of God. Because that's the only offensive weapon we have against the enemy in the whole arm of God, which is mentioned in Ephesians 6, right? And so Jesus clearly teaches us how to fight back against the enemy, by wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the only offensive weapon we have against the enemy, the Word of God. But if you look carefully at the end of that passage in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, this is how it ends. That with the when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him, Jesus, until an opportune time, which means he's coming back. And he's going to come back, and he's going to look for that perfect opportunity to strike him again. When he's 
most vulnerable, when he has no accountability. First Peter 5.8, this is how the scripture describes our enemy. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. See, Satan is very cunning. He's extremely intelligent. He's strategic. He knows exactly how to push your buttons, and he knows how to push those buttons, and he knows exactly when to attack. And it was an opportune time that the enemy had been patiently waiting for David to perfectly destroy him. And this was that perfect opportune time, opportunity to pounce on the faithful king of Israel. I heard one pastor say, say it this way, that Satan will hit you when you're hungry, when you're isolated, when you're tired. And let's be honest, this is when your guards are down. This is when you're most vulnerable. Isolation, I think that's the most effective way and a time that the enemy comes to pounce on you because that's when you're most vulnerable. And it is precisely at this moment that the enemy pounces on David when he's alone, when his guards are down. Now, because David wasn't where he ought to be in the battlefield, leading his army to victory, he finds himself with a lot of free time. He has a lot of time to kill, right? Ironically, it ends up killing him spiritually. Unfortunately, he, what he ends up doing with, during this free time will greatly jeopardize further damage and significantly destroy his spiritual walk. Pastor Garrett Kell, he reminds us that temptation usually comes, comes in through a door that has deliberately been left open. You know, I do believe that up until this point, David has been a faithful and loving king to the people of Israel. But deep inside in his heart, something began to, to happen, that he began to grow complacent in his walk with God. And on this one afternoon, he fell into great sin as the enemy came and pounced on him during this perfect opportune moment for David to give in to sin, right? And here's a solemn warning that I think all of us need to take heed here, that when we grow complacent in our walk with God, that we are entering a danger zone spiritually. And this is not a joke. It's a matter of life and death. But do you know what is even more deadly to your spiritual walk than growing spiritually complacent, which eventually leads to, as we will see in the life of David, a life of compromise? Do you know what's even more deadly than that to your spiritual walk? When you take off your spiritual armor. David was home. He took off his armor. His guard was down. He was having a lazy day. I mean, he kept that door wide open. 
for the enemy to just come marching in, and he got destroyed on that one late afternoon, right? He didn't have the only offensive weapon that he could have used against the enemy. Armor was off. His guard was down. The question I want to honestly ask all of you is this. How do you know if you become spiritually complacent in your walk with God? I think one way to look is carefully examine how you spend your free time. How do you spend your free time? I think Pastor Tim Keller is absolutely right when he writes this, that the things you daydream about in your spare time are ultimately the things you serve. Another pastor put it this way, idle time creates more idols. Idle time creates more idols. By nature, we have been created to worship and worship God alone. We are by nature worshipers. But do you know what happens when you become spiritually complacent? You begin to worship other things. You begin to worship other things. And you look for other things to love that is other than God. And in doing so, committing spiritual adultery, breaking God's heart. As your heart wanders farther and further away from him because your heart has grown spiritually complacent. Now you're living a life of compromise. Calvin was right when he said our hearts are idle factories. And this is why you need to make sure you don't leave any door deliberately open for the enemy to just come right in and wreak havoc, pounce on you. Make sure that you're standing firm in faith. Make sure that you have your armor on. And if you've been in your comfort zone for way too long, chances are that your heart, your love for Jesus Christ has been going cold. That you have already entered into that period, maybe a season, a long season of just being lukewarm. You just feel indifferent when it comes to the gospel, doing kingdom work, being his disciple. You can care less. Perhaps you're already in that place of spiritual complacency. If that is you, I really pray and hope that this will wake you up because it is a matter of life and death, and it doesn't just stop with you. It will have collateral damage, and it will also affect the people around you as we will take a look as we jump into the next point the destructive path of spiritual compromise. Verse 3, As David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told him, I am pregnant. Complacency leads to compromise. See, David, once the sin of lust, as we have seen how the power of sin can just take hold of you, once that was done, I mean, David just moves quickly to satisfy the passions of his flesh, right? I mean, he goes fast and furious. David sent for her, and David took her, and he laid with her, and when he was done, he just sent her back. That was it. Fast and furious, right? He wanted instant gratification, and that's all he cared about at that point. Because nothing else mattered. 
He was telling himself, I must have it now, even at the expense of violating and breaking God's commandments. Here we see a man who is utterly driven by sinful desire, lust. All he cares about is guilty pleasure. When he inquired about Bathsheba by telling someone, who is that? Notice how this man responded. Is, it, is, this, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This guy knew what David was thinking. So he made sure that he wanted to tell David that's, why, that's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. But that still didn't register, and David did not care. But even David calling him to come over, hey, come, who is that woman? He's actually uh, inviting him and drawing him to potential sin. Asking him to come and look at a naked woman, right? Inviting him to be up into a place where he can also sin, right? And David here, we see, is gradually becoming a stumbling block to those around him. So it's not just about you. When you become spiritually complacent and enter into a, peer, a, a place of compromise, it, it, it affects you, but it, you, it, it also begins to affect the people around you, right? He's drawing other people closer to sin and not closer to God. Did you know Uriah the Hittite happened to be one of David's mighty, valiant warriors? He was part of his inner circle. But David doesn't care. It's like sleeping with your best friend's wife, right? That's all he cared about. And here's the thing. David's life, up until now, I mean, it was hard. You see how God has been preparing him so that he can be king of Israel, and he has done a lot of good things for the kingdom of God and for God up until this point, and God blessed him. The kingdom flourished, but here, when he's at his peak, at, when he's at the pinnacle of his reign as the king, when he had status, power, influence, platform, when he was most comfortable, this is when he sins. Now, commenting on the, the fall of David, John Bloom, the author John Bloom writes this sobering words. We are never more vulnerable to sin than when we are successful, admired by others, and prosperous, as King David tragically discovered. Had a man ever been so blessed by God, every promise to him had been kept, everything David touched had flourished. Never had Israel as a nation been so spiritually alive, so politically stable, so wealthy, so militarily powerful, and at the peak of this unprecedented prosperity, David had committed such heinous sin. Why? How could he have resisted so many temptations in dangerous, difficult days and then yield at the height of success? Almost as soon as the question formed in his mind, he knew the answer, pride. Monstrous, self-obsessed pride. Honored by his God, a hero to his people, a terror to his enemies, surrounded by phoning assistance and overflowing affluence, the poisonous weed of self-worship had grown insidiously in David's heart. The lowly shepherd that, David had, uh, that God had plucked by sheer grace from Bethlehem's hills to serve as Israel's king had been eclipsed in his own mind by David the Great, the savior of his nation, a man whose exalted status entitled him to special privileges. The greatest enemy of our souls is the pathological selfish pride at the core of our fallen natures. If we look deep enough, this is what we will find 
feeding the strong, sinful cravings of our appetites. And this is why prosperity can be so spiritually dangerous. We need to take note of that. David doesn't sin. David doesn't commit this great sin. David doesn't break God's heart when he's running away from Saul. When he has to endure difficult moments that prepared him to be king over Israel, during those moments, he's on survival mode. And it was during that period, he was fully dependent on God. He's clinging to God. But now that he's a little comfortable, now that he has power, now that he has status, now that he has influence, now that he has a platform, and at this point, zero accountability, in his mind, he's above the law. So he ends up committing this great sin. Scott Sauls, in his book, From Weakness to Strength, warns us that what happened to David can also happen to any of us. And I quote, There's potential in every Christian, even the most virtuous ones, to become caught in unimaginable transgression. Are you a Christian who thinks you are not vulnerable? Are you not like the person who looks at the acorn and thinks that such a little thing can never become an oak tree or a forest or or a forest fire? The sin in our hearts is the acorn. It is a power, if not crushed, to germinate, to become a sprout, and then a tree, and then an entire forest. Whenever our hearts are vulnerable, it is essential to crush the acorn before it becomes a sprout to dig up the sprout before it grows into a tree, to chop, it, chop down the tree before it becomes a forest, to plow the forest before it takes over more and more land. And this is why you need to guard your hearts at all times. Never put off your spiritual armor. Make sure you're wielding the sword of the Spirit the word of God, which is the only offensive weapon we have against the enemy. Make sure your life is firmly and deeply rooted in the word of God so that when the enemy comes, you're ready to fight back because you're spiritually alert and awake and ready to stand firm in faith. And this is why we need to guard our hearts at all times. Never put our guards down. And make sure that our lives are fully in tune with God and deeply rooted in the gospel. David, at this point, he's about 50 years old. And Charles Swindle, this is what he writes concerning what all the things that David had accomplished up until this point. And David was about 50 years old. That's what he writes. And he had been on the throne approximately 20 years. That's a long time. And in the span of 20 years, he has done a lot for God's people and for God's kingdom. I mean, he had distinguished himself as a man of God, as a composer of psalms, as a faithful shepherd, as a valiant warrior on the battlefield, and as a leader of his people. He not only led the people in righteousness, he gave them the glorious music of the psalms. He was a man of passion as well as compassion. He was a man after God's own heart. But in an instant, he fell into a period of sin. Yes, he became spiritually complacent, which opened the door wide open for him to engage fully in a life of compromise. But do you know what else happened to David 
after faithfully serving, sacrificially serving his Lord and people all these years, 20 years, this is what Tim Keller calls magisterial self-pity. And he pretty much says something like this, that at this point, David thought that he had earned the right to do whatever he pleased. He kept telling himself, I've been laboring so faithfully, sacrificially for God's people for the past 20 years. And look what I have accomplished for God and for his people. Perhaps he was tired. But at this point, all that matters is he just wanted to have some fun. He wanted to indulge. And that's what he did. And this is what Keller calls magisterial self-pity. No one knows what I'm going through. No one knows what I had to sacrifice for the kingdom of Israel to, to get to this point. No one knows what I've done behind the scenes when no one else is looking. That's what magisterial self-pity sounds like. Does it sound familiar? When we give in to sin, when we give in to temptation, oftentimes we justify our actions by saying something like this. Life is too hard, and past month or so has been just too crazy. I've done so much. I deserve to have some fun. A little fun here is not going to be that bad. God will understand. God knows what I'm going through. So let me just indulge a little bit. I mean, my sins are already forgiven, right? My sins, past, present, and future, he knows. So let me just indulge a little bit. That's how sin creeps in. That's how enemy enters, right? And this is what happened to David. It takes 20 years to build a reputation and five minutes to ruin it. I think David learned this the hard way. Now, when David hears that she's pregnant, now he panics. Now he has to cover it up, right? He needs to make sure that no one can find out about this. And from this point onward, as David, David frantically tries to come up with a cover-up plan, you'll be able to see clearly how sin escalates as the story develops and moves forward. And here's the thing. Sin begets more sin. It doesn't just end with adultery. Now it leads to deception. Now, so the plan is to bring Uriah home. And I want you to understand what is really going on here. So David summons and says, bring Uriah back home. But get this, they're still at war. And Uriah needs to be in the battlefield because he's one of David's valiant, mighty men. And he has no business coming back home at this time. He's a killing machine. He needs to be in the battlefield. That's where he belongs. But all of a sudden, David says, bring Uriah home. And he does. And David tells Uriah, I want you to go home and spend time with your wife. But he doesn't say it explicitly like that. But if you look at verse 8, he says to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet. That was their way of saying, spend some time with your wife. Don't you miss your wife? But notice what Uriah does. He does not go home. At this point, he's still wondering, like, 
King David, we're at war. Why did you bring me home? <laughs> and David, you know, he wants to appear as if he really cares, but deep inside, he's just trying to frantically cover up this mess that he has created, right? In verse 7, he's asking Uriah, oh, welcome back. How are you guys doing? How's, how is everyone doing, right? He could care less about that, right? All he cares is, okay, Uriah, just go home, sleep with your wife, and that will be the cover-up. But first plan doesn't go according to his plan. If you look at verse 10 and onward, when David found out that Uriah did not go home, now he tells him again, go home. Why won't you want to go home? Don't you want to see your wife? Go home, spend some time with her, and then you can go back to the battlefield tomorrow. But notice how he responds. He tells King David, Everyone um, is in the battlefield. My fellow soldiers are fighting. But how can I, knowing that, go to the, com- go to the comforts of my home and have a meal there and then lay down and you know, lie down with my... I would not do that. He had too much honor and integrity. So at this point, he's telling David, send me back. I don't want to be here, right? And at this point, David is you know, frustrated and annoyed. Like, why won't he listen to me? So verse 12 and 1, what does he do? He gets him drunk. Gives him a lot of alcohol. He's like, maybe when he's drunk, he will go home, sleep with his wife, and afterwards, I'll send him back. But even that doesn't work out. Uriah gets drunk, but what does he do? Instead of going home, he sleeps with David's servants. You know what, you know what is so ironic here? that Uriah, who's drunk, still has more integrity and honor than David, who's sober. David, all he can think about is, okay, how do I get this guy to go home and sleep with his wife so that I can send him back afterwards? But even this plan doesn't work out. But even at this point, you know, Uriah must be wondering, what is going on? Why am I here? Why won't King David send me back? So eventually David realizes this is not going to work out. So, as I said, sin breeds more sin. Adultery leads to deception. Now it leads to a premeditated murder. He tells Uriah, okay, you can go back tomorrow. But in David's mind, he already gave the death sentence of Uriah. Uriah must die. So what does he do? He sends a letter to Joab, and he sends it at the hand of Uriah. That's pretty much he's carrying his own death sentence. Joab, after receiving this letter, pretty much obeys what David, uh, what, what David asked him to do. Put him at the front, forefront of the battlefield where there are uh, mighty men from the other, other people were there so that he will be killed. And that's exactly what happens, right? David orchestrates Uriah's death. And to cover up his own sin, David kills Uriah. But now get this. Joab gets involved in David's mess now, in David's great sin. And this is what happens. It's not just about you. The people around you, they get sucked into it. There's collateral damage. An Old Testament scholar named Dale Ralph Davis, this is what he writes concerning what David's doing here. The man after God's own heart takes the sword against God's own people. Here is the one who puts Mephibosheth at his table by extending love, mercy, and grace, but he puts Uriah in his grave. 
welcome to Thugsville. I didn't make that up. That's really there in the commentary. I was like, whoa, he really used that word. There's a stark contrast. If you look at even in a few previous chapters, we see David extending love, mercy, and grace to someone who is so undeserving, a guy named Mephibosheth, who belonged to King Saul's family, who deserved nothing, absolutely nothing but death. He spares his own life, but here we see a totally different David. He's putting Uriah in his grave. And here, the one thing that I, I, I want you not to miss is the fact that when sin takes hold of you, it doesn't just affect you, it affects the people around you, but get this, it also takes your gifts too. It also takes your gifts, all your resources, your talents, your experiences. Consider these words from Jackie Hill Perry. David was trained in how to defeat his enemies through effective means. He was a man of war for decades. So it shouldn't surprise us when he utilized those same techniques when he came to murdering Uriah. When sin takes hold of your heart, just know it will take your gifts too. You see what's happening here? The power, status, influence, affluence, the platform that God had given him so that David can glorify God and use it to bless his people, he used it to do the exact opposite. And in this case, to cover up his own sin and to kill Uriah. And this is why you need to make sure that your life is firmly grounded, grounded in the word of God so that when the enemy comes with this temptation, you can fight back and stand from and not give in. Make sure that you are not becoming spiritually complacent, that you are living a life of compromise because your life is at stake, the life of the people around you is, is at stake, but not only that, your resources, your gifts and the talents. And these are the things that God has blessed you with so that you can faithfully steward them to be a blessing, be a channel of blessing to the people around you. But when sin takes hold of you, you begin to use them not to edify, encourage, love, and serve, but to tear down and destroy. So this is not just about you. This is why you got to fight back. You got to stand firm. You got to cling to Christ even more because left to our own self, we are simply outmatched. And at this point, Sadly and tragically, all David can think about is just covering up his sin. But after finding out that Uriah is dead, notice what he says in verse 25. Oh, yeah, he tells the messenger, thank you for the report. You know, I'm, I'm so sad that Uriah is dead, but is he really? And he tells uh, the, the messenger to go back to tell Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Go back and win the battle. He's saying, it's okay. I mean, I'm so sad that Uriah's dead. But tell Joab it's okay. Don't let this bother you. People die in battles all the time. It's okay. I have many more mighty men. Go back, encourage Joab, and win the war, okay? But is he really feeling that way? All he can think about is so relieved that he's dead. (laughs) Because in his own mind that no one will ever find out now. At this point, David is not living under the authority of God, living in the presence of God and living for the glory of God, the exact opposite of that, right? But get this. 
when David thought that he got away with everything, right? Uriah is dead. When, they, when David actually thought that he had covered this, then no one will find out. Notice how the passage ends. Notice how the passage ends in verse 27. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. He's not mentioned in this passage. But God knew what David was doing. God saw, God knew, and he provoked him to anger. I think oftentimes when we find ourselves giving in to sin or temptation, I mean, let's be honest, it's usually done in private when no one's looking. And you indulge here, a little bit there, thinking that this is just innocent, guilty pleasure. No one needs to know. It's just, you know, I'm just going to do it because I feel like I deserved it, I earned it. But God is watching. God knows, right? And David is about to find out. But God's going to pursue him in love and mercy and grace. Let's jump to our last point, our desperate need for the sin-conquering king. If I were to end the sermon right here, it would just be another moral lesson. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. Don't murder. But that would be problematic. Why is that? Because it reduces this passage, this story, this narrative, into just another moral story. It doesn't address the core problem, what we all struggle with, the waging war within. It doesn't get to the heart of the matter, the sin issue. There's no gospel solution, right? John Piper, he defines sin in this way. And in my personal opinion, I think this is one of the best description of sin. This is what he writes. Sin is the glory of God, not honored. The holiness of God, not reverenced. The greatness of God, not admired. The power of God, not praised. The truth of God, not sought the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not believed, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved. In this passage, David is doing the exact opposite of this on that late afternoon. It's easy for us to sit here and point finger at David. How could you do that, David? I will never, ever do what you did. It's easy for us to sit here and point fingers at him, right? But let's be honest. We are all guilty of breaking God's heart, committing spiritual adultery. In Ephesians 5, Paul describes our relationship with Jesus Christ as that of a spiritual marriage. Let's be honest. How many times have we broken God's heart by wandering away from him, by becoming spiritually complacent to the point that we settle for something else that is not him, that we fall in love with something else that is, that is not him? We're all guilty of this And this struggle will continue. This waging war within, this tension that we feel every day, it will be there until Christ returns, right? And Paul talks about this in Romans 7. The good that I want to do, I cannot do it. The evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. This is who I am. It sucks. I struggle with this. I feel this tension every day. But he points us to this hope 
that we have in Jesus Christ, who is our sin-conquering king. In verse 24, he says, Wretched man that I am, because this is who I am. I fall. I give in. I will be defeated again and again and again. Wretched man that I am, but who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Brothers and sisters, I'm sure you guys have all experienced defeat. Spiritual battles. Maybe more defeats than victories. And there is David, this lustful, deceitful, murderous, idolatrous David in all of us. David fell, and we will fall as well. And this is why we desperately need to cling to Jesus every moment of our lives, who alone is our sin-conquering king. David was this imperfect king who got conquered by sin, but we do have another king, his name is Jesus, who already conquered sin and death for you and me on that cross once and for all. And I do believe that this passage serves as a solemn warning for all Christians. Just as we have seen in the life of David, how suddenly and fatally any of us can fall. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That tension is real in my heart. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Perhaps that should be our daily prayer as we go to God, seeking his mercy and grace. Brothers and sisters, don't get too comfortable here. This is not our home. And always remember that we are still at war. The enemy is not going to stop. But I do want to remind you that Christ has already won the war. And nothing's going to change that outcome. He has already won the war, right? You may lose your spiritual battles here and there and experience defeat, but that's not going to change the outcome of the war. But that doesn't mean that now you can just keep losing. Now, in the places that God has called you to be, You need to stand firm. Make sure your life is firmly and deeply rooted in the gospel and the word of God and and continue to hold on to the sword of the spirit, which is the only offensive weapon you have against the enemy. And if you're like, you've been stuck in your comfort zone, I want to challenge you to get out of that comfort zone. Because number one, You're of no use to God's kingdom in the comfort zone. And when you get too comfortable, that's when the enemy will come. Because most likely, you will end up spiritually complacent. And that leads to compromise. And you know where it ends up, as we have seen in this passage. Do more of those things that stir your affections for Jesus. Whatever that is, Continue to do more and more of those things that will stir your affections for Jesus Christ so that you'll never ever become spiritually complacent and end up living a life of compromise. 
And whatever dulls your affections for Jesus, get rid of them. Get rid of them. It's easy to say the cross before me, the world behind me. But if we are honest, our lives don't look like that. Our lives look more like the cross before me, the world behind me, my stuff next to me. No wonder why we keep falling. No wonder why Christian life feels like a drag. We're carrying things we don't need to carry. We are at war, right? But we do have Christ who's our sin-conquering Savior, and He will be with you every step of the way. And through the power that He gives, you will be able to experience victory one battle at a time. And that is a promise that is promised in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need you. Every hour, we need you. Thank you for being our mighty fortress, a place of refuge. But Father, we do pray and ask that you continue to strengthen us and empower us with your spirit so that we will never ever grow spiritually complacent and live a life of compromise. But help us to live a life that is pleasing before you as we continue to intentionally fight the battles before us that we will continue to live a life that is firmly and deeply rooted in the gospel so that we will continue to remain faithful to the calling that you have placed upon our lives, Lord. Thank you for being our sin-conquering Savior. Thank you that you have already won the war. With that in mind, help us to live victoriously through the the power that comes from the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.